rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, the time is 6.01 p.m. And you are watching Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. We are proud uh, to be here with a great, interesting, dynamic, and fun panel of great experts in our community to discuss reimagining public safety. Uh, my name is Curtis. I am the proud host of Good Morning Aurora and also the outreach and volunteer coordinator for the Neighbor Project here in Aurora. I'm happy to moderate and to be involved in this important community discussion and initiative. We want to thank everyone once again for their participation. Let us begin. We are going to start off with a brief introduction from each of our guests and we will go in order starting from the left. So, sir, let us begin with you. <clears throat> yes, my name is Nicholas Rosario Thompson. I am a community organizer with Indivisible Aurora and the Black Lines for Hey, my name is Jamie Mosser. I am the elected Kane County State's Attorney. Ron Hayne, your Kane County Sheriff. Great. And I'm Barbara. I'm the clinical director at an agency called Family Service Association, and I also supervise the police social work program at Aurora Police Department. All right. My name is David Guevara. I'm an investigator in the Crisis Intervention Unit with the Aurora Police Department. Okay, great, great stuff. Uh, thank you very much for everyone who is tuning in tonight and taking part in this discussion. We appreciate your participation. So let's talk about why we're here. Reimagining public safety. Uh, what does that mean as a start off? Uh, anyone can take this. Would you like to start? What, what is reimagining public safety? I would have to say that it's really being innovative and creating new ways um, to try to deal with individuals in our community that um, you may be having a maybe just a regular police problem or I think in the kind of what we're talking about today so maybe a mental health crisis right anyone else want to take that public safety I guess I have to jump in here first of all Curtis are you on camera too or are you uh I am not on camera Why I am that? not on camera you know what uh <laughs> the glare from the bright lights exactly that, yeah yeah and I'm gotcha. sweating right now so <laughs> I gotta loosen him up a little bit he's a little stiff over here. well done yeah, so like I, I think I've said this on your podcast before, that my philosophy uh, is that based on what we do or don't do inside the Kane County Jail directly affects public safety in the community. And so that's why we plugged in just a, a myriad of resources, not just for folks in custody, but as they reenter. Because if we don't do what we're supposed to do as a correctional center, that's why it's called a correctional center, they're going to come back out, they're going to recidivize, create more crime, create more victims. So, you know, we've been reimagining public safety for the better part of the last four years. Um, it's been a lot easier over the last year and a half with uh, the great state's attorney, Jamie Mosser, uh, and some of the new programs that uh, we've uh, developed. But, uh, you know, it all goes to the data that we've gathered. We dropped the opioid overdose deaths of the formerly incarcerated in the Kane County Jail by 89%. 
We've taken uh, recidivism from a 49% average down to 18% is where we ended last year. Countywide crime is down 16%. So by developing these relationships with people in custody and supporting them as they reenter uh, has given us that reimagination for a safer community. Okay. From my perspective, having been a career prosecutor and only taking a time out in between to go into family law and to help victims, you started to see where we were failing as prosecutors. We were taught and trained a certain way, which is you commit a crime, you go get punished, which is jail or prison. But that wasn't solving the problem. It wasn't helping people, and frankly, it wasn't keeping our community safe. Now, there are people that have to go to prison because they make our community safe, and we need to focus on that. But the majority of the people that come into our criminal justice system come there because of mental health issues, substance use disorder, a lack of resources like homelessness, and frankly, just plain stupidity. Sometimes people make a mistake and they end up in our criminal justice system. And if we don't treat them a different way, just being charged, just being arrested, just spending a night in jail could have long-term effects where they lose housing, they lose a current job, the ability to have a future. And we've seen this happen in our community. And so for me, it was figuring out a better way to be the state's attorney and to prosecute cases here in Kane County. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I, I like to echo some of the things that were said, and I, I'll take a slightly different approach. I think reimagining public safety actually requires uh, reducing the line reliance on some of the, the carceral and, and policing methods historically. So uh, if you look at the, the direct divestment, if you look at the direct divestment and deprivation of many communities historically, for over decades in the United States. Uh, I think a lot of these problems are socioeconomic, and there is no way to wrestle with these problems with uh, policing or correctional uh, facilities. This isn't to say that these things should be removed tomorrow, but this is to say to reimagine it, you're going to need alternative methods to deal with houselessness, mental illness, substance use, and that is to me what reimagining public safety is. It has to be expanded. There has to be public safety commissions. It has to be data-driven and backed by research, right? And I think oftentimes, and I was speaking to the state attorney earlier about this, I think there's commitments ideologically to some of these institutions that I think are archaic. And people are opposed to new ideas, not because of their ineffective nature or uh, their ineffective nature, but because they are more committed to what has been done and not what needs to be done at times. So reimagining public safety is addressing the socioeconomic problem, which is going to require, I think, investment in way different ways we deal with harm. Uh, way we deal with poverty and the way we deal with mental illness and substance use in our communities. Okay. If I had to just add to that, certainly reimagining public safety, I think it's also the awareness of no one could do this work on their, on their own, and we all have like an important role to play in it. I think what we've noticed through collaborating is that our work is that much better for the families, for the individuals. We're all kind of on the same page, which is really to get the person the help that they need. Um, and so they can function in society. So I really think reimagining a lot of it is about partnering together in ways that we have not done previously. All right, partnering together in ways that we've not done previously. So let's talk about roles, because I think a lot of the community, um, they are familiar with our sheriff, our state's attorney, and uh, some of you folks, but let's talk about specific roles that you guys have in this reimagining of public safety. Uh, we'll start with you. So, specifically with the unit that we both work together in, Jeanette and I, 
we are primarily going into the community and following up with crisis. A lot of the issues that I think that that we used to have in the past is it's like almost like a detective in investigations, right? I'm an investigator, but I'm not really following up to our our criminal side of things. I'm following up to a mental health crisis. A detective always will do follow-up work to get something done for his case that he's assigned or his or her case. And nobody ever followed up with mental health crisis, a mental health crisis. They would go to the hospital if they needed to be hospitalized or if they didn't meet the criteria to go, they would stay home. But there was never somebody to come back and say, hey, how are you doing? And what we're doing right now with, within our unit is, hey, how are you doing? What do you need? What is going to help you get better? And as a role as, as a police officer, investigator, you know, we're there for the safety component. A lot of it has to do with that partnership with having a social worker present because there's a social worker always with us right. uh, when we're trying to follow up with these families or the individual that had a crisis in the community. Okay. Uh, the next question is, that process, what does it look like from the top, from dispatch, criteria, assessment, um, and you know what initiates a response that would require um, a social worker? So sticking with, the, sticking with that for, for the moment. When it start with, going with the dispatch perspective, they're, they're gonna ask, a, they're normal questions that they would ask anybody. Um, and uh, some of them are medical questions, and okay. sometimes that's how my, maybe a mental illness may pop up. My, my indi this individual suffers from schizophrenia, or they're bipolar, or they're just depressed and have anxiety today. Uh, some of these lines of questions that our dispatchers ask uh, will give an indication of whether or not uh, maybe it may need a little of a different response. Okay. Um, because maybe you know, mental health is a, is a medical issue. It's not a crime to, to be anxious, to be depressed, to be schizophrenic. Um, so maybe having that social work element where we have somebody else there that comes from a clinical side of things is what makes it so unique um, and helpful to the families because it's it's shocking to families when you go to them like you brought a social worker, yeah. <laughs> right? They, yeah. What what people don't seem to be used to that. They're not. No, no okay. they're not. They're really surprised and um, oftentimes families and even individuals in crisis will take the time to say, "Wow, this is really great that you brought a social worker. Like this feels different." Like. You know, it feels good that you guys also followed up with me. Like, it's, it is a difference in, like, the perspective and the approach that we're doing. All right. Um, so, broad topic again, reimagining public safety. Is it where it needs to be? Do we have the resources we need, the support, the tech, the funding, and is it going to last? Say no. Anybody can jump <laughs> in. Would it last? You guys can... Yes. But no, we don't have that yet because the resources have been taken away from social service agencies for a long time yes. to the point that even just trying to get them back to where they were then is still light years behind. We need to focus on this partnership between law enforcement and social work because that's how we're going to help people. But that comes with money. We need to be able to fund this so that we can truly help people. All right. I don't think it will ever be where it needs to be or where it should be, and we should not be complacent in this role. We've learned over the last three and a half years uh, a very dynamic and different environment. We have to be very agile. We have to be able to shift and trend to whatever the needs of the community are. So I hope we don't ever feel like it's complacent and where, no. where we need it to be because yeah. we always have to have our finger on the pulse. Yeah. yeah. Community keeps changing, and what we've noticed, though, in like this community and surrounding communities is that the need for mental health services continues to increase. Um, just like any health 
issue, if it's not addressed on time, now requires you know, longer interventions, more treatment, maybe different providers. Um, and in a system where we are backlogged for mental health services, where it's months to get access um, for many individuals, like Jamie, what you were speaking about, it makes it extremely hard to get those who need the services the most that help because even if they choose to get the help, sometimes it's not accessible. Most of the population that we're seeing like within our program are between like the ages of like 18 to 30. And that population doesn't have, most of them don't have medical insurance. So they don't have access to things that we may take like advantage of or not be aware of that, you know, someone needs prescription. Like how much is that gonna cost on a monthly basis? Um, someone now needs to pay for outpatient therapy, which could be anywhere from 60 to $120 an hour out of pocket. And when you're struggling to pay gas or food, um, your mental health sometimes gets pushed to the side. So it really is a, a part of a big, bigger issue. Okay. Even hesitation to the hospital. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, no, I don't want to go to the hospital, not because they didn't want to see anybody. It was because they didn't want the $500 ambulance fee. Um, oh, or, it's way more than that. It's like $3,500. Oh, oh yeah. I've, I've yeah, heard, I, 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 last I heard was 500 I believe you, though. I, I took I, a ride in an ambulance. Yeah. It was, it was uh, yeah, a little bit less than $2,500 mm -hmm. just to go from my house to Advocate. Or uh, Mercy, excuse me. We just had this discussion because we're involved in this, this CESA, which is the creation of this 988. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the firefighters who were there, and I'm like, $500 is pretty steep. And they're like, that's not even close what it is. So wow. yeah. it is ridiculous. Cool. Yeah. Um, so to add, I think you had a, a point on the program funding and where we need to be. Yeah, I think everybody kind of just, you know, um, expressed what the problem is. So. If you don't have the, the resources to, to fund the things that are preventative, then no matter what you pass, what new program you do, it's, it's not going to work, right? right? So again, I, I'll go back to the poverty issue. I don't, the, the direct correlation of why the, the most incarcerated people who have the most contact with police are poor and, and, and lack a high school diploma, right? So if we aren't serious about investing in healthcare separately from policing and incarceration, investing into education, investing into youth, I think it's a non-starter. There, there's no way to reimagine anything. We're still in the same framework of police, courts, and prisons. And I think reimagining suggests that, you know, you know what, this obviously hasn't worked, whether you're having mass rebellions every couple of years from, you know, uh, George Floyd to, to Rodney King. Like, there's still major issues at play because of direct divestment and deprivation from communities. Like, if you look at it, there's not, in my opinion, I don't think there's been a 10-year decade in the United States where there wasn't, um, there wasn't some type of law legislation that wasn't harming black folks and poor people directly or indirectly. From war on drugs, crime bills, to the fugitive uh, uh, or convict leasing system, that has been the case. And there has been a modicum of effort to undo that poverty that was manufactured, that facilitates the crimes that we're trying to fight. So I think we're fighting a losing battle uh, by continually using the same methods on a national scale, even on a local level. But I, I, I'm hopeful because I think the discourse has changed a lot. I think we need to just invest in entirely different alternatives and a, a comprehensive approach to public safety that isn't reduced to a couple of things that we've been doing. That's why your local elections are so important. I would <laughs> say that too. That was a great, <laughs> the right people. What an excellent segue. Hey. I couldn't have done it better myself. That was awesome. Time is 6.16. Um, okay, so the next question is, um, and this is for you, um, uh, State's Attorney Mosser. 
how does this and everything that we're talking about fit into the vision of the Kane County State's Attorney's Office? Very nicely is the short answer, but what I am trying to do is to be a better partner to law enforcement and to the social workers and to our community. And part of that is being that person in the courthouse that steps outside and tries to find ways to actually make it better. One of the initiatives that we have started here in King County that is the first in Illinois is the pre-arrest diversion program. Now what this means is that an officer comes upon a person and let's say they're possessing a controlled substance. That's a class three or a class four felony. And that officer has dealt with this person before and knows there's an addiction issue and doesn't want to arrest the person, but what other choice do you have at that point? It's your job to do it. Well, now they have an option. They can reach out to us and actually refer the person, if that person wants to, to our case managers. Our case managers came about first because Sheriff Hain gave a portion of his budget to the state's attorney's office. I don't know that anybody's ever seen that happen before, so that I can hire a coordinator, and that coordinator helped us get grants so this is completely free to the people who use this program. And that's important. And as Nick has said, poverty is an issue. And if we were to say, well, to be in this program, it's going to cost you money, that may be a non-starter right there. Right. So then what happens is the case manager works with this person and where they are. And I don't mean physically where they are, where they are in life. They might not be ready to get addiction services because they have other issues that are going on. They don't have a roof over their head. They don't have food on their table. They don't have a job. There's something going on with their children. Our case managers sit and help them step by step by step. And we do that without the sword, the charge that we have in a criminal case system. We do that without the trauma of an arrest. We do that without putting them and taking them all the way to St. Charles to go before a judge and to try to navigate their way through that system. Crisis intervention in doing this only helps to identify the people who have these issues and don't need to go into the court system, but do need help. So all of this fits perfectly with the vision of what I'm trying to do in the state's attorney's office, not only with that pre-arrest program, but expanding our diversion programs and other programming that we've been bringing. How can people learn more about that? It's on our website. If you go to the Kane County State's Attorney's website, uh, we actually have a tab for pre-arrest diversion, and we're putting up our statistics of who we have there. Okay. Uh, not who, we're not listing who it is, but we're saying how many people we have. Okay. But in addition to the referrals we get from law enforcement, we actually take social contact referrals as well. So Curtis, if you have a neighbor that you see struggling with something, you can refer them to us too so that we can help them. I do. How did you know? I have a neighbor who's got problems. <laughs> Fireworks. Yes. 1 a.m. Mortars. Uh, that, but that's another that, story. That is a police issue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so next question, and this is for Jeanette. Jeanette, from what you witness in your profession, um, why are police important? What a question as you're sitting next to me. Oh, man, I'm surrounding, <laughs> too. Uh, <laughs> uh, no pressure, right? I know, no pressure. Um, okay, so, you know, I, I'm speaking from my own perspective as a mental health professional, as a social worker. My training is specifically focused on assessing the needs, assessing the risk, developing plans and collaboration with the person that's with us 
and hopefully carrying out those plans and collaboration um, to help them get the care that they need. Uh, the police are important when we have situations that require immediate response, sure. have like a higher intensity or higher risk factor because we currently have programs that operate throughout the state, through our, our, our areas that operate with no police presence at all. And um, those are calls that mental health professionals are going to um, where it's appropriate for a mental health professional to arrive on their own. Um, police are important because in our role, our role you know, on scene is never going to be to take an initiative to um, like, create like a physically safe environment and unfortunately when we're working with families that are in high stress individuals that are also highly stressed this is like the worst time of their lives like this could be their worst day ever um they're not sometimes going to act the way they've always acted before some of the behavior is really unpredictable um it could be predictable from one minute to another and as great as we are as being able to assess there is a challenge though when it becomes that someone is now becoming a potential physical threat to other family members. Because as a social worker, we don't have those tools for that. If someone's becoming a, like an actual threat to themselves in the moment, again, we don't have the actual resources to cope, quote unquote, like prevent it in the moment. Um, so police are important because it's collaborative. Um, I think what works in these situations is both of us understanding what our role is right and we all have individual jobs that we do and then focusing on like where do we meet in the middle because when we go out our, our main goal is really to assess what is going on what's needed and how do we you know help this situation we might not solve the problem that they came in with but our goal is to try to link them to services or support whatever that might be whether it's you know things are not as crisis right now and maybe we can do something like outpatient therapy but in some situations it does require um, a need for hospitalization and unfortunately we have a large large population that uh, of individuals who are struggling with a mental health crisis that actually are not aware that they have a mental health crisis so to ask them to go to the hospital, they will tell you, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm not crazy. This is actually real. This is happening or this is what's going on. Or um, unfortunately, that's when we really rely on our police partners to support us to, in collaboration, guide that person to the help that they need. Oftentimes being higher levels of care like that, we do need police support in that. Um, Reimagining public safety. So, so the word reimagining, right? So we, we've imagined, now let's do it again. What made us do it again? Why did we have to reimagine? What were we seeing that made us collectively want to reimagine public safety? Um, anyone can jump in. I think Nick had a great answer before. I'd like to hear <laughs> yes. him keep going on that. I would say, so you know, I think mass incarceration is a serious problem. Regardless if you lean right or left, it is a serious problem, fiscally, politically, and morally. And when we're trying to reimagine public safety, I, I think it, it's difficult to get through because I think of just misinformation about the different alternatives. But at the, at the core root of it, I think you said something that I, I wrote down, like it's literally their job to do it, right? Mm -hmm. they, don't, they literally lack the tools 
are, in, are, in, are incapable, not because of wants or desires of their sure. own, but because of the, how the institution has come to be. And unless we want to unbundle, one, what policing does, and two, what policing is and has been, I think it'll be difficult, right? The thing that I advocate for the most, and you know this, I talk about it too much probably, like it's ECPS like in Chicago, right? The Empowering Community Public Safety Act, where you have elected people, just like a school board, deal with the police. Now that relationship is always being talked about, it's real now because these people have power for hiring, firing, saying policy, and the participatory budgeting that is so, I think so important. No one knows better than what they need than the people who are asking for it, right? And having people in their communities dictate, determine, and decide, well, we don't need more officers can we get some housing? Can we get this and that? And like, this opens the realm of what public safety becomes. That's what reimagining public safety is. And to your question, we've gotten here because I think there has been a limited effort to actually deal with, again, the core causal root of crime and harm in our communities, right? I don't believe in any utopian idea they're going to eradicate crime, but I certainly want to deter it and ensure public safety. I just don't, I'm not convinced that the methods that we use now are the best approaches to doing it. So I think, just to piggyback off of that, the root cause, that is something that we stopped focusing on, at least from the prosecutor standpoint, because the concept was nobody would want to go to jail or prison, so they'd learn from that. But what we didn't realize is that there was still an underlying issue. The biggest thing that I tell all of the attorneys that work for me is trauma. Most of the individuals have some sort of trauma that's affecting them. And when you have trauma and you don't have a way to deal with trauma, then it's usually addiction issues that come up as a result of that. Trauma is the root of the majority of what we see. And some of that trauma is things that are developing over time. You have a kid whose dad goes to jail or prison. That's a trauma. You have a kid whose mom works all the time because the dad is away. That's a trauma. You have a kid who's seen some sort of gang violence. That's a trauma. This adult childhood experiences, they're real, and we see that. Sheriff Hain and I talk to the defendants with their attorneys present, that's important to note, in the jail a lot. Excellent. Thank you, very ethical. So, but when we talk to them, we talk to them differently than we ever have before. I don't talk to them about the case, I talk to them about where they came from, sure. what their experiences were. And in almost every situation, you see several of these childhood traumas that you see are forming their life. I tell a lot of people, I was involved in the domestic violence community. I was the head domestic violence prosecutor. And when I first was a prosecutor here in King County, I took a criminal case, or I had a case where I prosecuted a husband for battering the wife and I had to call the witness as a, as a the child as a witness in the case. And this kid was so sweet, and you could tell he didn't want to do this, but he also wanted to protect his mom. And there was a guilty finding. And then many years later, when I became the head of the unit, I prosecuted that kid for beating up his girlfriend. And that was a lot of the change that came about in me as a prosecutor because it became even more real. Where did his trauma come from? Why was he committing a crime now? That is what I look at every single case. Every case that comes before me, I don't look at the charge, I look at what's happening. And that's what I think we need to reimagine in our criminal justice system. And to Nick's point, there is a great deal of institutional inertia uh, based on the data that we've got here in Kane and our, our performance. 
I now have the opportunity to train, uh, well, now up to 14 jails in Illinois and 20 jails in California and also Virginia. Um, what we do and how we got those results, how we set up our jail, how we, how we structured our correctional system to get where we are. And even though these people are opening their doors and welcoming us in to train on this, there is still a lot of the, oh, no, we just can't do that. Why? Or we haven't done this before. Or this is brand new. So new is scary all the time, right? Absolutely. Um, so we have a long way to go to start or to continue to change minds and mindsets and stigma. Um, to Jamie's point about, I'll end on this, uh, trauma, our incredible jail counselor, uh, Nate Lanthrum from Lighthouse Recovery, uh, said to me recently, he's like, Ron, Yes, everybody in your custody did something dumb to get themselves there. They made a mistake, they committed a crime, but I guarantee you 100% of those people are also victims of something in their life, that trauma. And we're proud to say that uh, from what we've learned, we're the only jail, county jail in the country that provides true trauma therapy to those in custody, including EMDR therapy. We got a lot of acronyms on this show. What is that, E-N-D? E-M-D-R. What does that stand for? Eye movement desuscitation. I only knew the EM. Oh, recovery, 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 yeah. yeah. And it, it deals with taking. Someone can Google that. A trauma. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. You take a trauma from the emotional part of your brain. Okay. And they do it with eye movement. So yes. you go back and forth while you go through a traumatic event and your eye is moving. And what it does is it takes it from the emotional part and puts it in long term thinking. So it gives you an ability to deal with your trauma that you haven't had before. Yeah, it's evidence-based. It, it does work. It's one of the most effective treatments in, in terms of trauma um, because it is kind of taking that component of processing, but there is something about our brain that using that method is really successful. So really good to have that. Absolutely. All right. The time is 6.30 p.m. You are watching Reimagining Public Safety. Thank you for everyone tuning, or thank you to everyone who is tuning in and taking part in this great discussion. Next question is, uh, detractors of this, Reimagining Public Safety, will say that this is all smoke and mirrors. Uh, they say that these efforts are just a way to get good PR while not addressing systemic issues. What would you say to those people who feel that way? Well, we hear that all the time, um, and that's why we track data so hard. From the very beginning, we knew that we had, not just for ourselves to know that we're on the right path, but to prove to those cynics. And, you know, whether you're on the left or the right, I already put out a fair amount of data to the, to the left saying that, you know, we're changing people's lives, we're entering them better, we're reducing crime, reducing recidivism. Taking our jail population, as I shift to the right conversation, taking our jail population and cutting it in half over the last four years and saving our taxpayers $4.9 million over the last three and a half years by our work shows that in totality, this works for our entire community. Um, so you can be a cynic all you want, but your feelings aren't facts. The data is the facts, and that's why we track it. Nobody else gonna jump on that? I thought, I thought yeah. that was some juicy meat. Like, so what's I the... say to those people, <laughs> sure. then do something. Run for office, put up an idea, put up a change. Come forward with us and see how it works. Because there are plenty of people who will tear down our ideas. There's very few who wanna help build it all back up. But that's what we're doing. And in spite of all the negativity that's happening, we know this is the right thing to do. And there are plenty of people that we have all helped. Every single person sitting at this table 
who would come forward and say, but for that person, I would still be down that path. That was a little saucier than I intended. I'll try to be short. I think, you know, uh, the aim is always, anything that I do, I try to be sincere and have radical empathy. And uh, I always tell folks that, like, my goal and the work that I do in political education, organizing, and connect people to resources is to transform our community, right? We have to have correct definitions altogether of what that looks like, and that's what sometimes the problem is, but nobody wants violence and harm, right? I don't believe that. It's probably a couple people. Most people don't. They want a healthy community. It's different about how we approach it, right? I'm not convinced that punitive punishment or the carceral state can achieve that in any form, right? Yeah. And I believe, as of right now, because of how conditions are, you work with what you got. But going forward, I think if we want to reimagine public safety again, I think I'll, I'll return to that because that's what this is called. We have to be prepared and willing to even entertain the ideas of getting rid of some of these things and investing like money that he saves into way different alternatives based upon data and research of communities' needs, their material needs being met, right? I was doing some reading, and it was a couple years ago, and I think it was you or the other sheriff, and I think maybe DuPage, and 80% of people who come into contact with you in your jails had some type of drug addiction. I remember reading that, and I was like, that's staggering. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, and they are doing things about that, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, um, and this is to no detriment to their efforts, I believe in their efforts and genuine efforts, I know both of them, but I'm still not convinced then. I was like, we don't have a, a crime problem at all. 80% is a lot. I would like to see non-coercive institutions outside of the realm of policing and the carceral state, quite frankly, sure. that are way more preventative and really transforming how we deal with it in collaboration with these elected people who deal with public safety, right? I think public safety has to be completely transformed and invested into, and we have to work together, right? I'm not trying to, whatever people are, you know, he's a crazy person, he wants to get, I don't hate anybody. It's always a radical empathy. I'm just not convinced by the current methods. In the same way, mm -hmm. these people aren't bad people. They're doing everything they can to keep our community safe. How can we come together and recognize that maybe, how do we take that next step and entertain these newer, I think more innovative ideas of what public safety needs to be in the future? I, um, so, and just real quick, and then I'll get to the next question. Like, reimagining public safety to the part of the crisis intervention team, I always felt like years ago, like, you know, three, four years ago, I always thought like, you know, that's a great place to start. I always thought that that was like the low hanging fruit kind of thing. So I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, what makes things so slow? Why, why do things take forever? Why, or the appearance of, Forever for the for the people who watch and think like wow I can't I had that idea three why does it take so long? That's a funding. Let me see yeah, why I can put that one too. David, like, how did you? Uh, it, it is a leadership yeah. choice, yes. sure. And that's why I said before, and it, maybe it sounded tongue in cheek, but your local elections are so important. Your local office holders have that autonomy, that internal control to shift an agency in a completely different direction. Uh, at, in a very short amount of time. Look, we had our jail program set up in three to six months. Were we running perfectly? No. Uh, did we have it refined? Absolutely not. Are we constantly shifting to, to meet the demands and the needs of our jail population? Absolutely. Do I like to ask myself questions and answer them? Apparently. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Keep going, bro. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, that's why, you know, when you have 
elected officials, local ones, and I'm even talking outside of a city council or outside of a county board because they still have to come together and get on terms and vote by majority sure. to make something happen. But man, run for them local offices. Uh, this is how you invoke change and you vote change quickly and pay attention to your local office holders because if you're not seeing change, if you're not seeing these kind of results like we've experienced, time to shift. Um, this is a good time for me to kind of point out and, and detail to anyone who is interested. Uh, State's Attorney's Office has published their annual report. We have all 47 pages of it. Uh, we won't be showing this to you on camera, well, but that's available for folks with data, facts and numbers, and then yes. Sheriff, you guys have your own report. It's available on the website too. Canesheriff.com. Canesheriff.com. Homepage. All right. Curtis, before we move on, I did have a comment on that. Certainly, um, please. I think a, a, you know, a huge part is that this is something that's been going on for a very long time, right? And not just long for our community, but also long for the individuals that are suffering. So, and it's also complex, like to say that it could be solved with one thing is almost insulting, right, to that individual themselves. Like it's just not a one thing solution. Um, and it requires multiple solutions in the same direction, which is why I think that's part of the reimagination is like, let's continue to work together, moving in that same direction, all of us having our own place in this. But a lot of it is long term. And since I grew up in Aurora, I will say this, um, these services that are available now, you know, is something we didn't have access to when I was growing up in Aurora. To have these, um, you know, also very collaborative um, entities working together for the common good, like that wasn't at least very apparent as, as just a civilian in Aurora growing up. Um, and I'm really grateful that these are things that are coming together. Now, as you said, it's not perfect, it's not. We have to start somewhere. Right, and, and I think all of us are going in it with good faith and good intentions that we're trying to help. We're trying to make whatever it is better. Are we gonna fail at times? Yes, and that's where we need to stop, reassess, and then adjust order or bring in another partner to help us out with that area, so. Uh, next question. Well, we talked about how the public can learn more. Uh, KaneSheriff.com, State Attorney's Office, APD, how can people learn more about what you guys do? Crisis, you guys have a crisis yeah, intervention crisis, team? Yeah, the direct link to our site is connected to the city site. So the crisis intervention team, crisis intervention unit, it's there's a direct tab to it through the city's website. Okay. How's that water? Good. It's great. All right. I'll finish the All right, the time is 6.38 p.m. Um, so I have a question directly for you, Sheriff Hain. Um, what is the future of law enforcement and what will law enforcement do in the future that it's currently not doing today? So I can only really speak to Kane County because that's where my passion is and that's where I've been invested. Sure. And uh, I think we are leading the way to the future. Uh, we created our special victims team about three years ago and it is a balance of investigators and social workers. We now have two full-time social workers at the sheriff's office and it's much like the uh, crisis intervention team here in Aurora. Um, and it, it is a co-response model. Um, I do want to hit on an answer to that that I, uh, I see here is one of the questions you haven't asked yet, and I'm sorry, I think you might have skipped over it, um, about the militarization of police and, and defunding the police or reallocation of resources. So 
All of that means there has to be a balance going forward. We saw what happened in Highland Park. We saw the fact that uh, here in Aurora in 2020, during uh, the civil unrest, I'll, I'll call it an actual riot, uh, not only did my armored vehicles take gunfire to the front windshields, but also Aurora Police Department's uh, armored vehicle took gunfire to the front windshields. And if we did not have armored vehicles with bulletproof glass, we would have had some, some officer and deputy funerals at that event. Um, so we have to be prepared to respond to violence in our community, some of the worst violence possible. If we're not, then how do we look when those worst incidents happen? That's why we train constantly. That's why we, we over-prepare for circumstances. But then there's the other side of the balance beam where we have to have a very structured and supportive response to our community, much like Aurora does with, uh, with their crisis team, much like we do with our special victims team. Um, officers have to be focused on de-escalation going forward and not being heavy-handed. We have to be focused on resources and not just incarceration. That's why we love the pre-arrest diversion program. Which was the, the second part you know, of that. Doesn't the community have a point to worry about the militarization of police in America? That's what, yeah, so. That's, that's where that balance comes in. Okay. Well, I mean, that balance is there because, as Nick said earlier, he doesn't think that people want to commit violence, but there are people who choose to commit violence. And again, what we're finding out and study after study is showing is that if you have a kid that grows up in a violent area or a violent home, the chances of them committing violence are greater. It's a reality. So we have put these children in these places without giving them resources, money for their families to get out of it, a way out. We haven't provided that. But then when they commit these crimes, we say, that's it, we're done with them, we're just gonna lock them up. So there is something that we have to do in our community because we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect people from the violence. But we also have to do a better focus in the criminal justice system, but more importantly, in our community of actually providing resources to get people out of those situations. Again, you come and you talk to anybody in that jail, you're going to find out where they grew up, how they grew up, and the lack of resources that they had. You're going to find that this person became a gang member possibly because a family member was a gang member. When we do not focus on the root of the issue, we're always going to be where we are. We need police and we need to be safe. But we also need to have that secondary focus, which is making sure that we're looking at the resources for people. The time is 6.42 p.m. Okay, um, question. Um, we have collective opinions, uh, but I'll ask you guys that here in, a, in a, another moment. Now, Jeanette, you mentioned that we'll stick with Aurora specifically. Um, you grew up in Aurora. You were talking about the services or the kind of lack thereof once upon a time. Yeah. Um, Aurora has undeniably changed for the better. Um, what do you think we've learned over the years as a city? So we'll start with you, and then we'll get a point from each of you guys, too. Um, I, can't, I don't know learn? if I can answer like what we've learned in a city, but I would say um, what I've seen is that we, at least when I was growing up in Aurora, there was high crime, there was a lot of gang shootings, you know, there was um, a lot of youth that didn't have anywhere to go, so then they easily got snatched up into gangs. Um, I mean, it was not uncommon at the high school for there to be like gang fights or shootings outside. Like that was a common occurrence. So 
I actually think one of the things that really helped was addressing the like public safety issue, addressing that immediate safety issue of you know those crimes that were going on then allowed us to then focus on those individuals with the trauma with the needs to be able to create programming for that but when it comes down to it i think it's a, a double approach is we have to ensure safety is happening in the community um that way then we can also focus on like the growth of the community as well well said what have we learned i would say i actually grew up in the area as well um i was born in aurora i moved out just to the bordering us we go and I came back to live here as I worked here and um, I feel like every year there's always something new that's happening uh, within the city um, and a lot of it has to do with the new ideas and and with this in our role um, I never thought when I started my career that I would be doing this right now because um, it didn't exist at least not here so having the opportunity uh, within the city to work with somebody like Jeanette uh, to work with our sheriff's office, to work with our state's attorney, we it, it's it's a lot different. I kind I just was on the phone with the state's attorney's office today about um, uh, you know a mental health issue that somebody that's incarcerated at the King County Jail that is family members concerned. They're reaching out to our unit, and I'm we're trying to work all together. And there was nobody that I mean we all worked together in the past. That's nothing new, but. For the individual just to make sure that they get treatment and help um, that wasn't something that we were doing and so uh, I think that what we learned is getting to that root cause versus just all right committed the crime we're done with it um, that that is something that we've learned and now it's just how can we get more access to resources for individuals and where do we find the funding for that too and I think that's what we've been trying to work on Sheriff, same question for you, and then we'll keep going down the line. Aurora has undeniably changed for the better. I, I guess you could also speak from a county perspective as well. You know, the county's big, a lot of cities. Um, what have we learned over the years? I'll focus on Aurora on this one, okay. and, and I think it does go towards the rest of the county, but Aurora historically has had some of the worst crime issues uh, in Kane County. Right. So I remember fondly being a young deputy, and there was a time in Aurora where mm -hmm. The mayor would say, and going back to the 90s here, so understand me, you're probably still in high school at this point. I, I was here in the 90s. I went to school at eight. I was super young. No, you weren't. I was um, born. <laughs> but the mayor would say that there was no gang problem in Aurora. At the same time, these shootings are happening outside yeah. of oh, Aurora yeah. schools. Yeah. So when leaders begin to listen, open their ears, and open their eyes to actual issues on a daily basis, that's when the time uh, really started to change. Okay. And, and the criminal culture really started to shift and change here at Aurora. And yeah, back then, police were much more militaristic than they are now. Uh, very aggressive tactics. Um, you know, there were no social workers. It was straight to jail. Uh, and completely different heavy-handed era uh, of law enforcement. And then, of course, as we continue to listen, as we continue to be agile and shift, like I said before, we implement all these different changes over time that build those bridges that take the crime rate down, that actually support our community and engage our community. So that's really where I think Aurora came from A to Z, where they are now in a much better place. Time is 647. It also took, if I recall, it also took the FBI to come in and I, I can't remember the name of that sweep 97 first degree burn yeah yeah right 98 99 and she went down 2006 and that information came from the king county sheriff's office <laughs> oh i'm sorry oh, oh, oh yeah no you know what take that take that that's all right 
Um, good stuff. Jamie, same question for you. But I do have to say there's a collaborative effort with APD, FBI. Because otherwise the FBI had you on their radar, so FYI. Yes. Right. Um, so I, I, the same thing. Like when I came here, I was a, I had been a prosecutor in New Orleans, and that is a whole different world than what we have here. And so my eyes were opened in New Orleans, and they were opened even more here. But the the approach that we started to take was to get rid of the worst of the worst, and that's Operation First Degree Burn is one of the things that I learned from because they went in and they swept out. And they tried to get the big leaders in the gangs so that we could try to eliminate that portion. But where I think we stopped was what's the next step then? How do we help people? That's what I think we are doing now. Mm -hmm. And these collaborative community events and partnerships are what is starting to do that because now we're saying, okay, we recognize the problem. We've taken a small chunk of it out. What else can we do? Right. And that's what we're doing now. Nick? Sure. Mr. Thompson? Can we phrase the question again? Yeah. Uh, Aurora has undeniably changed for the better. Uh, what have we learned over the years as a city? Sure. I think what we've learned is you can look at, you know, my brother grew up in the 90s and, you know, I'm, I'm a 90s baby, I'm 94, so I wasn't alive during uh, the 80s and things like that, and she's laughing at me. I'm the youngest here. I am a student of history, and what I, what I think they've learned is, and I, I hope that it's a continued education on this, that a punitive measure that they just kind of described uh, weren't the answer. The heavy-handed approach wasn't really the answer. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't provide a different perspective on the idea of militarization of policing, because uh, I think that aids this conversation, is that I think, one, trust is so vital to building, rebuilding relationships between communities and uh, law enforcement, or whatever institution ends up becoming, right? But if there's not trust in the community, I don't think there could ever be trust of to law enforcement currently, right? Okay. So I understand like the, the fear and the need to have tanks, drones, and other militarized equipment. Uh, a lot of it comes from the 1033 program, which uh, a campaign that I, I support that ends the 1033 program federally, which transfers military-grade equipment to municipalities. Uh, my biggest thing with this is this. Other countries have sometimes disarmed police, and they don't have as many mass shootings either. We have a very violent gun culture here, and I think that needs to be examined and say, the likelihood of people disarming themselves by the police are heavily militarized is going to be difficult. And I don't think it's one, uh, one solution of that. It's a multi-pronged approach, but that as a culture, other places do not have the violence that we have in terms of gun violence. They just don't. So that has to be examined and wrestled with. And then their police sometimes don't even carry guns normally. So because I've seen it in other places uh, come to be, I know it's possible. And I know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next week. But if we're not working towards this idea that Maybe we don't need this. Then we're, I think we're shutting off the, we're foreclosing the conversation to actually reimagine anything. Because we're saying, well, this has to be. Anytime anyone says anything has to be, I'm, I'm dubious. Right? A lot of these things are entrenched in us institutionally, and I think it takes time to do that. And to finally answer your question, Italy, I think what's changed is that there have been different mindsets slowly accepting that we can welcome new ideas and that what has been done doesn't suggest that what needs to be done. What needs to be done is looking at community, empowering them to take part in the civic engagement, and then you, I guarantee you to see a transfer community that wanted to take place in their own public safety. It'd be vastly different if they had a hand in it. And that, again, is things like the Empowering Community Public Safety Act that we talked about earlier. So, The time is 6.51, and what we have learned tonight is that when you do a discussion like this called Reimagining Public Safety with a great panel like we have tonight, you need more than one hour. 
That's why. That's what will people listen for more than? Oh, they're listening. Yes, they. Yes, they are. My mom is here. Hi, mom. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. See, it was all. We can. We can go home now. I didn't tell my mom. Um. Okay. Well, before I before we get to the next last couple questions, I I to piggyback off what you said, Nick, a little bit there. I, you know, I think, and it's just kind of sad. I never thought that we'd be here with the little small incremental gig. So I'm, I'm happy, kind of like Jeanette said, I'm, I'm thrilled, I'm ecstatic at what we, of what we have, that law enforcement is, is sitting down with the community and, and having those listens um, and, and the sessions that are being had are translating into actual policies and laws are being changed. Legislation takes a long time. It's the sausage making, and we know that. But I never thought that we'd be even here. So I'm glad that we're like I'm glad that it's happening, kind of thing, you know. So so I um, I just want to let you guys know I appreciate it. Uh, here's well, the next question. That's a testament to the people on this panel. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking yeah. about the state attorney, the sheriff, this brother over here. It's gonna to, to realize the world that I envision. I think it's going to take people who are open to new ideas and willing, and not committed to just uh, the the ideological commitment to policing and prisons. But like, no, we want effective things. Mm -hmm. And once we get there, we can both work on effective policies. I think you know transformation takes place. And for a long time, we just didn't have that. So I think this is itself progress that we're even together talking about all of these ideas. How can we, the public, help all of you? I would say I think something that's been on my mind since we've had this discussion is um, we have a lot of individuals we come across. Uh, I think that there is a lack of trust when it comes to people wanting to, you know, I show up at somebody's house in a police vest, gun, badge. Um, it's very intimidating. I come with a social worker, so I balance things out mm -hmm. a little bit for them. But Not really. She looked tough. Um, she does. <laughs> she does. She scares me sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, no, in, in all seriousness, people have to want help. You know, that's probably one of the biggest struggles. You have to want help. If, if there's an individual that is incarcerated, that is coming to the state's attorney, that's coming across the Aurora Police Department, coming across a social worker, if that person does not want to be helped, it's difficult get them to help because we can't force it sure our courts can keep somebody in jail but trying to get that trust mm -hmm. for people to just know like hey we want to help you and 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 people following through with that that's probably i think one of the biggest difficulties that we all might see especially with going out to people's families is that you know they don't want to get help they can't we can't do anything we don't know what to do and then trying to guide people the right way so that they can trust us and then they can eventually get the help. Maybe if it's not right immediate, because nothing's ever going to be immediate, but maybe six months from now, maybe they'll, they'll come back and say, hey, I remember they said that they could help us now. Right. Jeanette, how can we, the public, help you? And Family Service Associates of Elgin? Family Service Association of Greater Elgin. Greater Elgin. Oh, <laughs> I got you. Um, <clears throat> so this is a really good question. Um, if, <laughs> money, money is always going to be helpful. I mean, the reality is that we are extremely short staff. I think like four years ago, Illinois already had like a 300% uh, shortage of mental health professionals. Now I can't even imagine what the, the numbers are. So that was four years ago. Now I'm not really sure. It's, it's 
awful. We have multiple agencies in this area that's they have positions that are open with zero applicants for six months. So I would say um, we need to do a better job at also getting people to be in the mental health field. You know, it's a field that, you know, as, as Jamie had said, it's gotten funding cut the entire time. So it actually doesn't motivate many people to be able to want to be in that profession because they're really, you know, on, on some situations, one paycheck away themselves from poverty because our field is actually a not very high paying field. So what is that salary? Why don't you give them the average salary of a social worker? Oh, I would say a lot of social workers are probably with a bachelor's degree are probably like at $35,000 starting. And, and if you go up to a master's, that might be a different pay. But I would say, you know, it's it's really challenging because the student loans still cost the same whether you got a law degree, essentially, right? right. Or um, social work degree, we still have loans that, that are sometimes huge. So funding, yes. Um, getting people interested in wanting to do this collaborative work because all, you know, all of us, you know, we, we work really hard, but we're eventually going to have to pass the torch, right, to another generation of people who hopefully will continue to carry and reimagine how this is. Um, the last two things I'll say is mental health has a huge stigma. I feel like if the community, if we can start looking at mental health as just being health, right, it's a health issue that does impact all of us. Um, that would essentially start removing the stigma to help hopefully people to see like they want, they should, you know, help is a good thing. It's not a weakness. Um, so I think eliminating the stigma on that. And I would say the other thing that we could do is, um, be kind to each other. I mean, what we do now is going to reflect 10 years from now. Um, we really need to also focus not just on the intervention piece that we're talking, because a lot of our work is, you know, in some instance reactive, but that prevention piece, what, you know, we have kids right now that are struggling. We got to help those kids so they're not then the adults that are in the sheriff's, you know, jail, right? right? And in your court. Mm -hmm. right. So, right. Uh, quick answers, and then we can wrap this up because you guys will have a message to deliver to yes. our wonderful listeners. Sheriff, how can the public help you? Quick answer. Uh, unfortunately, after uh, you know any active shooting incident, which happened way too often in our country, I have to answer the media quite a bit. And uh, this is the one thing that I put out there at the end of it all. I go back to the old Homeland Security. If you see something, say something. Amen. We say that on the show every, what? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know that. So know the signs, know the signs for somebody in mental health crisis. If you're not sure what they are, look up King County Sheriff's Facebook page. We just did a post about, you know, signs and who you can call. Right. Uh, look, every King County citizen is blessed to live in a community where law enforcement is going to respond to their call with a litany of different resources, modern resources, professional resources. So engage with us. Don't wait. We get these calls all the time. I saw this happen an hour ago or two hours ago, and I didn't think to call then, but you know, I thought I'd call now, and it was something incredibly serious that we could have mitigated. Or again, I hate to keep back going back to Highland Park, but you know, all the other signs that we're seeing in the newspaper now that this man was exhibiting, um, resources potentially were plugged in, or somebody made the right phone call at the right time. Right. See something? Say something. So for me, it's it's knowledge. I really do believe that we've become a society in general where we read a, read a headline and we assume that. I can't even tell you how many times somebody will just come quickly to an opinion about something. Something happens and then that is the worst person in the whole world. This happens and then this is the assumption. 
if we actually start as a community learning about what's going on, learn about what the state's attorney actually does. Find out what I do on a daily basis. Find out about our programming. There are plenty of people on one side who say well, she's way too soft on crime, and there are people on the other side who say she needs to be easier on it. None of those are true. I look at each and every case in the way that I should, and I make sure that justice is done. But we don't look at it that way. We judge the people who come into our criminal justice system, and we just say flat out they're criminal, we're not going to help them. We never take the time to find out why they're there. We never take the time to find out what we can do. And everything goes back to the resources. Uh, family services can ask for donations. The state's attorney's office cannot. But I want to tell everybody that a person starting in my office as a support staff person makes $29,000. That is not something that can happen. And when we posted that on our Facebook page, I got a whole litany of comments about, come on, state's attorney, pay more. That's not my choice. Right. I have a budget, and sure. this budget is set by the Kane County Board. And I pay people with the money that I have. But that's, again, the judgment. My starting attorneys make $59,000, and they have law school debts. And I lose people constantly, great support staff, great advocates, great investigators, great attorneys because we haven't put that as a focus. These attorneys, and it's not me, it is these attorneys and advocates and support staff that every day do that job for nothing because they care about this community. And so know that when you're talking to the county board and when you're looking at what we should do as a community and where this focus should go. Because the better people that I have here, and they're great, but the longer I can keep them, we will make our community. Nick, how can we, the public, help you? And then we will wrap up. Excellent segue in what she said. You know, know your elected officials. Figure out what they believe in their politics and then uh, act accordingly. Uh, secondly, join an organization that is aligned with your values, your beliefs. Support that organization. I'll give examples of like the organization that does harm reduction in like Kane County and around the area called Point to Point. And I've worked with uh, Lindsay Hartman before. She's an incredible person and does it on a shoestring budget. And like it's what she does, is she's literally saving lives every day and giving people the things that they need, right? And so what the, the brother said over there, you know, sometimes people don't want help. I'm, I'm going to uh, ring this again. And that is, I think a democratization of public safety where people are involved in the, the public safety process actually will bridge that gap of lacking trust. What if there was outside institutions or organizations that were funded and took, and took care of the people that had a trust that was a bridge between the law enforcement, who sometimes people don't trust, or even public, the public sector isn't, had, had a lacking of trust and transparency that has been declining for years on the local level as well as the national level, right? What if there was intermediate organizations that were doing that work that can then say, step in and say, will you trust us because you know we are meeting your needs and we're not the bureaucracy? I think that's needed. So join the organization, be civically engaged, and finally, like I, I really do believe the idea of democratizing public safety and upping the funding, because what she just said, like it always comes back to that idea, right? If we put people over profit and we properly fund the things that need to be funded, we wouldn't be having the same conversations year after year after year. Uh, but you know we can't move the ball until then. So to help me, brother, just join an organization. It only got to be mine. Find an organization that aligns with your values. Do the work. One hour a month, starting out, right? Because people are working jobs. I know I work a nine to five, and it's not always easy. But when we're all putting in the effort to transform our community collaboratively, that's when change starts to take place from the public sector, the private, and then the communal aspects of grassroots. Um, that's what. I, that's how you can help me. 
I feel a message from each of yourselves to our Kane County residents would be powerful as a way to wrap up this evening's discussion. We'll start with you, Nick. Uh, what's your message this evening for the people of Kane County? Besides what you just gave us, join the organization. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, I don't want to be redundant, but, uh, you know, I'll echo what she said. Don't be so quick to judge, like, without further investigation into something. Because of some of my politics, I've been said, when Nick hates people, but then you meet me, I'm a teddy bear. You know, I, you know, I, I move with radical empathy, a revolutionary love for my people and my community. And at the end of the day, I really want to see total transformation of things. I'm, I'm aware that they take time. So the message to people of Kane County, like, if anything I've said and you've been hesitant to do, get a cup of coffee with me. I'll break it down. And we can then we'll maybe have you join one of the organizations we do, right? We got food programs that we do that we collaborate with Interfaith Food Pantry. We've had uh, political education programs on expungement, a host of things, because we want to meet the needs of people. This is not about us as individuals. This is about, like, we really love our community. And we know most people do, but if we don't have that community, right, it's very difficult to be involved and immersed in it. So my message to you is, you know, come out, be active, be involved, and that see some say some uh, ends up being a lot easier to actually create when people know each other and there is a sense of safety already there so thanks turning how uh, what's your message for the people of kane county well first i have a direct message to curtis's mother you have raised a great son oh um, thank you yes. <laughs> oh that made a thing appearing next week on the show state's attorney recurring guest no but i i the first time I met you was when I was running for office and you had me on your show and you asked a question that floored me and it was, tell me about your father. And I don't even know if you remember this. I do. And so it was not something anybody asks. And that was a time that I got to tell people that he abandoned us and went to prison because he faked his own death. And I am the state's attorney in Kane County and my father went to prison. And so that's not something that people know. And you, you took me to a level where I you made it understanding and I loved it like it always resonated with me that you were a person that cared so to Curtis's mother you have raised a great son thank you very much Jamie I appreciate it to the people of Kane County help us help me I am I love this job I absolutely love this job now there are days that I go home and I wonder why I did what I did <laughs> but then I wake up in the morning and I get to do something great with great people. I inherited an office of fantastic, caring people. I work with law enforcement who I know care. And sometimes we argue about stuff. There are people that I want to give a chance to that the police officers understandably are concerned about. But we start those discussions. But I need that with the community also. I need to talk to you about the programs that we're doing. I need to find out what it is that you think is working and isn't working and learn. So come talk to us about it. We have been lucky enough to have started restorative justice in the state's attorney's office, which actually takes a defendant, the person who committed the crime, and puts them in the same room with the victim of the crime. These have been some of the most powerful meetings I have ever been in because the offender is able to take accountability and to apologize and to really learn from what happened. And the victim is made to feel whole again. And this has happened in cases from aggravated battery to police officers, aggravated DUI where somebody got severely hurt as a result of it, um, revenge porn cases, a whole variety of things. 
these are things that will make an impact in our community, but I need the communities to start come to come help to us, to talk to us, to find out what is working. How can we make you feel safe? How can we bridge the gap between the community and law enforcement so that you know that every day we are working hard for you? Sure. So at the end of four years of what I would call success on the Sheriff's Office part, and reimagining public safety, all the data that's out there. Now it's up to GOTV to get out the vote. Uh, Nick said it earlier, voter turnout is horrible. People don't recognize, I'm gonna say it for like the fourth time, the <laughs> local elections and what they mean to safety in their community. Uh, to your point about knowledge, go to canesheriff.com, look at our annual report, go to haneforcanesheriff.com, look at the plans from the past, that we said we would do, and we chalked off every single box, and we have a plan to go forward. So everybody's gotta get out there on November 8th and make it be known that if you appreciate what's been done here and you wanna keep the ball going, it's up to you. Absolutely. Jeanette, how can the, uh, or your message to the people of uh, King County? Um, I would say that there is help out there, although there's a lot of the things that are, you know, we wish were, more immediate openings there is still help out there there is resources I want to talk about 988 is a is a new federal line that is rolling out the 16th I believe it's this Saturday so it's going to be transitioning the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline so going from that full 1-800 number now to 988 will lead you to there to speak to the mental health professional and it also have like texting ability so this Saturday that rolls out 988 when the state is at a better place and more and ready, um, there's gonna be mobile crisis responding teams that will be able to go out and assist those individuals that maybe a phone call is not sufficient, but need more in-person contact. So that's 988. And I would say in this area, if you're looking for other resources and not just mental health, but as we talked about, mental health is, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors for someone's mental health. There is 211, and that's where you can get information on different resources that are in our area and your location. Um, and if you have a, a family member that's struggling with a mental health issue, um, I, it can be extremely you know, heavy on, on the family member. Seek your self-help, even if the individual themselves is not at that point yet, especially if you're gonna continue to be there as support for the person. Okay. And Ending right, ending with the man of the hour, APD. How can we, uh, or excuse me, scratch that over. Um, what's your message to the folks of uh, King County? You know, I think that a lot of uh, the issues that people have, um, a lot of it is maybe a discussion with their peers, their families, their friends, you know, but if we don't know about it as an agency, um, or if the sheriff doesn't know, if the state's attorney doesn't know, if the city of Aurora doesn't know, we can't implement change, we need to know. And so when you start participating, um, I, I just did one with uh, uh, Katrina Boatwright, she's one of our um, specialists within uh, the city of Aurora, but a listening uh, session with the community. What are some of the needs that we need for members that have disabilities? Right. Something as simple as that, um, and having that organized so that we can listen to what people really want and what is, what's lacking in the community, then we can do our best to try to see if we can find something to make it happen, um, and that's that's what I would have to say is just if you need, if you need something in the community, and that doesn't even have to be a mental health resource, but 
if it's access to services to whatever your needs are as a community member, and it may not be from the police, but if you say it to me, I, I might know somebody in the city that might be able to help you. So trying to get them connected to the right people, but we got to know. So let us know. Awesome. The time is 7.11 p.m. We apologize for taking 11 extra minutes of your time, but we thank all of you great people for tuning into this important discussion called Reimagining Public Safety. We want to say thank you very much to Aurora Police Department, Family Services Association of Greater Elgin. See, come on. I got it. We got there at the end. Uh, Kane County Sheriff, Ron Hain, Kane County State's Attorney, Jamie Mosser, and Nicholas Thompson. Thank you very much for tuning in. Take care of yourself and each other. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Take care.